At the core of Sufism, it's all about love. And intergenerational trauma, pain, neglect, whatever that looks like for someone, it turns into these places where we don't love ourselves, where maybe we believe we're not worthy of love, we're not good enough, shame, regret, grief, all of these different things. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. I'm your host, Dr. Tara. And I've been actively reinventing myself since I discovered the power of neuroplasticity. I have transformed myself personally, professionally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm here to show you that no matter your age or mindset, you can do it too. And because we're all about reinvention, season two is going to be quite different to season one. The episodes will be released weekly, and we've listened to your feedback and decided to go ad-free. There's a strong theme of ancient wisdom which made me realize that the things we need to flourish in life, love, health, and work have been hiding in plain sight for millennia. I hope this season is as impactful for you as it is for me. In this episode, we'll be exploring all things Sufism, the mystical Islamic belief and practice of seeking the truth of divine love and knowledge. Today we'll be speaking with an engineer turned jewellery designer and alchemical coach who creates spaces for meditation, mindfulness and healing. Please welcome certified spiritual healing practitioner, master student in Sufism and classically trained jeweller and silversmith, Adrian Wiltsey. Hello Adi and welcome to the podcast, finally. Finally, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful to be here with you today. I'm so excited. Me too. I was just reflecting on actually how long it has taken me in my thought processes and my search to end up here with you. I, I just realized this morning that it was spring of 2021 when I reached out to my network and said that I was interested in learning more about Kabbalah and Sufi mysticism. And I, you know, had some things to read. And then, you know, all sorts of like things happened and I ended up doing season one of Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara and it was stories of reinvention. And then I returned to this interest in ancient wisdom. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to find guests for the podcast, one from Sufi mysticism, one from Kabbalah and other things. And I just could not, like all of my friends were like, it can't be that hard. We'll help you. You know, we're reaching out to people. I just, just couldn't. And it got to the point where unlike me, I just, because I don't usually give up on things. I just thought this isn't meant to be. So I'm just going to leave it. And so there's a bit more of a backstory, which is that one of my closest friends in New York came to stay with me. um, And it was just after Christmas. And she gave me a little manicure travel pack. And it was called Sundays. Mm -hmm. And it was all like organic and breathable and everything. And then a few months later, I came to New York. I was having lunch with another one of my friends. We were a bit of a little girl gang. And um, we were having lunch in Hudson Yards. And I said to her, I need to get a manicure. Can you like help me find somewhere? And she said, oh, babe, I've got this place. You're going to love it. Um, it's all organic and breathable. And it was a Sunday salon. So um, I got chatting to the manager there. And she told me about the founder. And I really wanted to meet her. So eventually, I came to the Upper East Side Salon to meet Amy. And that's where I first met you. And, you know, we liked each other, but it was, it was sort of like nothing more than that at the time. And then when I returned and I just popped in for a manicure myself, you were wearing this amazing kaftan. And so I asked you where it was from. And you said, oh, I've just been on a Sufi retreat because I'm studying a master's in Sufi mysticism. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, I found my person. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so that's that's my backstory to finding you. But I'd love to start off with your actual story, because it is a story of reinvention before we get to the Sufi mysticism, which is like your background, your upbringing, your education, the other jobs that you've done, and everything that's led you to, to where you are now, or especially all the changes. Absolutely. I feel like this is what we call divine timing and alignment. And it's just mm. so perfect. Oh, so the backstory, I was born and raised in Kansas and kind of like the heartland of the U.S. and a small town of about 5,000 people. And I'm the eldest of two and had um, what you might call kind of humble beginnings. My parents are amazing. My dad's number seven of eight, grew up on a farm, was the only one to go to college. My mom um, actually just finished her master's in education a couple years ago, which is incredible. And education was always really impressed in our family um, because that had been something that my parents, I think, had struggled attaining. It had just mm -hmm. been a challenge, although it was important. And so by the time I was like 12 years old, I knew I was going to be an engineer. That was the thing that I really had a passion for art and creativity and working with my hands, but I was also very good at math and the sciences, all the STEM. And so it was like, well, that just makes sense, right? And being the practical eldest child, that's what I was going to do. And so I studied plastics engineering and spent about a decade in industry and high-speed manufacturing. Wow. So I was the first, um, yeah, <laughs> first female engineer for a subsidiary of Coca-Cola and worked with that company for several years then pivoted to, um, I really liked maintenance and rebuilding equipment and running crews and teams and just like the high-speed feature that is high-speed manufacturing. And um, so I pivoted to another job and something just was out of alignment. And at the time I was married, I'd been married for like four or five years at that point. And um, he and I had met in college, that kind of typical thing. And I just knew I needed a break. I was working a ton of hours. I had traveled the majority of my career. There was just a lot of pressure and tension. And so I took a break and I thought, oh, I'll go get back and get a master's in material science. That makes sense. Again, practical thing. Well, I ended up accidentally selling jewelry. And that just opened up this completely other world. It was like, oh, the holidays are coming up. Let's see how this goes. And it was right in the market. I was in Houston at the time where the art team was even starting to take off even greater. And I dipped into... um kind of the market scene and fine art scene. And that journey completely started reconnecting me with my creativity, with um, my heart, getting to know a little bit deeper of like, oh, wait, I remember who I am. And mm -hmm. I got to study under a fine jeweler, mentored under a fine jeweler for three and a half years. Ernesto Moreno was an incredible jeweler. And helped me just really reconnect to like what I wanted life to look like and maybe more mm -hmm. possibility. And then <laughs> after a 40-day yoga challenge and hearing all of these people talk about their amazing transformation, you know, everything from divorce to marriage to changing jobs. And I'm on my mat going, I wonder what's for me. And I mm. didn't know. And two weeks after, I decided I want to go to keep doing yoga like four, four or five times a week really enjoy it. It had been the thing that I really, really did for myself. Mm -hmm. And first week I didn't make it. Um, my husband would want to go with me at the time and he'd get home and then he wouldn't want to go and he wouldn't want me to go. And I was mm -hmm. like, 
you know what? I'm going to go to the day during the day, the classes that I love. Well, that class, I was in with the perfect teacher and my heart, everything just burst. And I was on the mat sobbing and there's these realizations coming up and it's like, oh, okay. I had a lot of fear. Yeah. I had all these different things going on and it was like, oh, beloved, you're not safe. And the body, you know, the body and the brain and like what it does to protect mm. you. Mm. And in that moment, everything kind of flooded in. And I realized that I had been in a long-term relationship that was unsafe and unkind mm. and um, needed to get out as quickly mm -hmm. as possible. And so mm. I planned for 13 days and then I cleaned up my studio. I say in air quotes, I was like, pick, oh, just picking things up. And I'm like, I'm planning my escape. And I left in the middle of the day. I found a lawyer and I went to um, a women's resource center and got a safety plan mm -hmm. and left. And that was seven years ago. And it was at that point um, when I called my parents, I said, this is the situation. I need help. Here's where mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't want this to happen again. And it was at that point that I realized that, that um, the cycle of uh, intimate partner violence, codependency, mm -hmm. these types of things was not just mine. It was intergenerational. And I'm like, this, this stops with me. And so you can tell the family, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> There's no shame. Because then it was like, oh, well, so-and-so's had this issue. And like, so here and there, and you're like, oh, but why did we never talk about it? Mm. Because like, even subconsciously, we're passing down the behavioral patterns, the maladaptive mm. behavioral patterns that mm -hmm. have maybe kept us safe for generations. But we're not actually breaking the cycle. Mm. And I'm like, so for the last seven years, I've spent my time and all my resources to heal that in the most deep, deep way. Yeah. Um, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, movement, flower essences, therapy, anything I can get my hands on that resonated was what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um. At the same time, when I was doing my jewelry business, I realized this isn't just about the jewelry. Like, I loved big gemstones. There was something about the energy. There was a clear energy exchange happening. Mm. People have always shared their hearts with me in ways that I didn't know how to contain. And so okay. leaning and stringing through all of that was the thread of me searching for something bigger. Mm -hmm. Like, I need, if I'm going to continue this kind of alchemical work, of helping not only heal my heart, but helping other people heal their hearts. I need like a container the size of the universe, right? Like where do we find that? And I had explored lots of different options and nothing just like really like burst my heart open. And it was February of 2020. Again, divine timing. The universe source knows best. I had been accepted to a... um trauma-informed coaching program that was mm -hmm. like just kicking off. It was, you know, kind of pretty prestigious. And I just, I got off the phone. And I said, I don't think this is right for me, but I'm not sure. And I need to call someone. I called my brother because I had known for about a year or so, something had been changing in him. He's an acupuncturist. Um, and I knew he was studying something else, but I was like, I don't really know what's going on. And he had told me about this, like, institute that I could study with. And it just, every time I went to the website, I'm like, I don't really know what they're doing here. We'll see. Right. So I mm. call him and he does this angelic protection prayer. That's a very ancient mystic 
Sufi prayer that calls in the archangels and thousands of angels, like the most light, however you can conceptualize this from your heart, feel that. And it burst open my heart. It just, I was like, oh, I didn't know the phrase Alhamdulillah, which is like all praise to Allah, God's source. Mm -hmm. But I was like that. I want to feel that. And I want to hold other people in that. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, you know what to do. So I called this Institute of Spiritual Healing and I talked to the admissions person who's a lovely woman. And she says, well, what do you know about Sufism? And I said, I know I've always loved Rumi since I was a little mm, kid. Same. He's a mystic poet, right? Everybody knows Rumi. Yeah. And my brother's Michael. Oh. And she's like, oh, we love Michael. Okay. Um, Welcome. It's kind of like, all right, you're not completely fresh, but you are from the outer, right? Like your outer maybe is fresh, but okay. So they put me in a foundations class and I was hooked. And then I immediately started, it was a two-year program that was a spiritual healing certification where you really learn how to heal others through healing yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of starting a master's, which I'm about... um, 16 months away from completing. And so there's a series of levels. And with each level, you're learning how to heal on a different um, kind of time and space. And that is what's led me here. So through the pandemic, I just, it was such beautiful timing because, you know, lockdown, everything. I was living nomadically. I got to very much like sequester and study and travel Mm -hmm. with the earth, with the cycles of the seasons, um, mostly Mm -hmm. avoiding winter (laughs) and and, and go through this journey in a way that was very contained until the door opened to move to New York City for Mm. us to eventually meet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're such a good storyteller as well. I just, I I love the way that you've (laughs) taken us on that journey with you. And I just want to add in a couple of things that, that you've told me, which is that you were, you were brought up in a Christian family, right? Yes, very yeah. cradle Catholic. Always loved Jesus, but just I was the kid that got in trouble for the asking questions. Um, <laughs> you know, and just so yeah, this is this is a thing, and there's some truth there, but it never like hit my heart in the same way. And didn't you have an unusual experience of Catholicism in that it was um, you went to Hispanic churches, right, which were like much more colorful uh, and such a blast like such a blessed and unusual for our church. So the town I grew up in is in southwestern Kansas and has a very large immigrant population from Mexico mm-hmm. and South America um, because of the industries that are there. And, and it's the church, though, Catholicism is very big, obviously, in Mexico and, and elsewhere. But the church was probably 75, 80 percent um, Mexican and was called our mother of Guadalupe, which is the alliteration of Mother Mary as she mm-hmm. revealed herself in Mexico. And it was, it was so beautiful. I loved the colors, the music, comparatively speaking. If you've ever been to like an Anglo Catholic mass versus a mass in, in Spanish and a Mexican mass, the music, everything is just more vibrant and was definitely influenced. Um, I think my connection to the religion mm-hmm. and my connection to myself, for sure. It was mm-hmm. there's a lot of I think deep beauty and like privilege for the way that um, you know we had extended family that or, or fa- friends that are family, right? Yeah, that were yeah. very much 
So I grew up very much in that multicultural atmosphere and very, very grateful for that. Which is really interesting because if you tell us a little bit about like your family history, kind of like, you know, ethnically where your family came to America from, it's really different, right? Totally different. Yeah. I'm a like mixed European descent American. So everything from something that I just recently uh, discovered through my mother's research is um, I'm a 10th great granddaughter of um, the woman, one of the women who was the last to actually be um, hung in Salem as accused as a witch. I just found that out here in the last oh couple of years. Oh my goodness. And completely tucked it away. I was like, we'll deal with that later. I did not have yeah. the resources and it's actually influencing the healing work that I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Nurse was her name. It's the the Crucible. Okay. The movie was actually built off of uh, her story. And so that's influencing my dissertation for my master's and that lineage, yeah. like the epigenetics of uh, an instant like that mm. to um, my great great grandfather was a stowaway at seven or nine from Ireland during the Irish potato family. So away with a friend, not telling anyone. Um and then my great-grandmother, who I knew, who was German, and they mm. fled Germany when she was nine. And I had the privilege of knowing her till I was 12. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it's this kind of funny mix and then being born in the United States. Yeah, so like a mix from way back generations <laughs> and then a mixed mm-hmm. upbringing in that, you know, like you said, it's the heart of America, your family were Catholic, but then, you know, with this big Hispanic influence... We'd obviously also love to get some nuggets of wisdom from Sufism for our listeners. But I wonder if telling the story of how you've used Sufism to heal your intergenerational trauma is a great place to start. And then maybe we could draw out some other nuggets that you may not mention in your personal story. Sure. At the core of Sufism, it's all about love. And intergenerational trauma, pain, neglect, whatever that looks like for someone it turns into these places where we don't love ourselves, where maybe we believe we're not worthy of love, we're not good enough, shame, regret, grief, all of these different things. Mm -hmm. And in Sufism, it's the veils of the heart. So we have kind of three layers. There's Mm -hmm. the nefs or our egoic self, Mm -hmm. the heart, and then the soul. And then you can go Mm -hmm. back further to the secret and our secret of our secret. But in those first three levels or layers, um, we say there's 70,000 veils that come between ourselves and our divinity or our connection with Allah, with Mm -hmm. God's source, Mm -hmm. whatever words you want to use that you're comfortable with, right? For this like essence that for me connects us to the oneness and to each other and to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the Sufi walking, like I said, I had done a lot of work. Mm. We're going to call it work. I'd done a lot of work prior to finding Sufism. And for me, what that did was prepare me to the point where I could really start looking at those hurt places in an even deeper way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in therapy, I felt myself a little bit in a, in a loop of just like, how much can we talk about this? Like, what happens next? When does the pain, like, does it go away? Does it transform into something? Like, what's, what's next, right? Mm-hmm. And the body, I could feel things trapped in my body and I was trying to move it, but it's like, I just needed, I needed more, right? Like I needed a bigger mm-hmm. container. And when I began on the path, and in particular through the Institute of Spiritual Healing, um, learning the healing work in this way, 
there are many different tariqas, I should say, of, of Sufism or groups of Sufism. Mm-hmm. And the Shazali is all about healing and healing okay. with your connection of to Allah and through the 99 names of love or Allah. And so what I found was that at times, even when it was very painful, um, very painful to look at the, the neglect and the trauma that I experienced, even as a child, the pain in my marriage, all these different things, um, I felt so contained in the love. And they talk about like the ocean of mercy. And one of my favorite places to be is floating in the ocean. And you know when you can just roll over and float and you're so held, you don't have mm. to do anything, right? You can just exist. Mm. And that's how I felt and continue to feel through the walking is that the love that comes through Sufism and comes through Allah and through these teachings is this divine mercy that it, it doesn't matter. Like it, it matters what happened because that was mm-hmm. your real experience. Yeah. And when I say it doesn't matter, it's like everything is loved, even when we can't find it lovable in ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's space for everything. And so I've just been able to show up in a way that's much more authentic. Mm-hmm. And so the veils, when you use the divine memes, when you experience a Sufi healing, those veils are, or the rust on our heart. We Sufis are storytellers. <laughs> we love yeah. all the analogies and the Sufis. Yeah. So there's a different way to say the different things. But you're just, you're scraping off the rust from your heart. And so you're getting closer and closer to who you were before you were. Before we came in with, you know, communal wounds. Mm -hmm. um, Before you experienced the intergenerational trauma. Before, you know, in this world. All the times you didn't get the care you needed Mm -hmm. when something happened. Because it's not so much like what happens. It's what happens in adjacent, like in conjunction to in that moment. If you start to cry because you bumped your knee, are you met mm. with a big hug and love or are you mm. scolded for crying? Mm. Like that's a very different outcome in terms mm. of how that experience is embodied. Yeah. And so the work, like the the work or the experience of healing in this shadowly way and in the way that our guide, who we belovedly call Sidi, um, brought over is there's just so much love for everything. And that, to me, has been the salve that all those places needed that I couldn't yeah. find elsewhere. That's amazing. It's so beautiful. And so are you able to share with us some of the sort of the principles of, of Sufi mysticism? Like what, you know, are there some tangible things that people could take away and maybe go and like read further about or practice? So one of the main practices, the very, probably one of the very first things I learned is a practice of, again, we can say this a couple of ways, and I will, mm-hmm. a practice of connecting with our hearts. It's a practice of connecting to divine love or a practice of connecting or remembering Allah or God's mm-hmm. source. Mm-hmm. And in one way we call that is remembrance. The way I like to think about it is, is that, so we have our brain, right? And we have our heart, our Mm -hmm. physical heart, but then we also have our spiritual and emotional heart. Mm -hmm. And on a physical level, when the resonance of our organs are all measured, the heart actually resonates out further energetically than any other organ, including our brain. And there's a scientific like relationship, right? Between our brain and our heart. Yeah. So the metaphor I would use is that we can actually bowel our, our consciousness to our heart 
and begin to start the practice of heart connection because mm-hmm. it's the part of the of the belief. And this is being said in a very like um, I hope approachable way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that when we connect to our heart, we can then connect to the big heart or like the one love, and that's mm-hmm. where anything is possible. Okay. And so there's a practice. Like I like to do kind of a guided meditation that's very visual. We can ground and feel our connection to the earth. We can start to feel held by gravity. And then without judgment or attachment, we can drop our mind down to the cubby hole that lives behind our heart mm-hmm. and start to see and look and notice, observe, discern from and through our heart eyes mm-hmm. and through our heart ears and then speak from the heart. And it's like that place is the place, again, where like anything is possible. And then we actually can build a group heart off of that because like even here between you and I, there's a group Mm. heart. The Mm. energy doesn't know space or time. Anyone who listens to this, inshallah, will feel the group heart and like feel contained. Yeah. And so that's one of the practices that um, you can do it in a way that... If you're comfortable, you could say the name Allah, the mm-hmm. awe sounds and the law, like the tonal values align to light. And so that's one of the beautiful things about Arabic and Aramaic. And there's mm-hmm. several other holy languages mm-hmm. that those tonal values open up that energy pathway wow. and bring in and call in the light. So that's why we use Arabic. Um, mm-hmm. That's why we use the divine name, the name of Allah. Allah just translates to English as the God. Okay. So yeah. So if you're a Christian, like the 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 tarika or the group that I'm I'm a part of is very much made up of um, people who are Christian, Jewish, all kinds of traditions that have okay. been searching for something for a deeper connection. Many of them have practiced other healing modalities, therapists, doctors, Reiki professionals, all kinds mm-hmm. of things. So we can do this practice. I know this is a lot of words to say one practice, but Mm -hmm. it's the core of everything. Yeah. So what I would recommend is you can put your hand on your heart, that energetic heart space. It's usually Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle. And just make that noise. It's like the sound of the heart. It's the awe. And just allow that like awe. And you can feel it first like awe is like up in my head, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can feel where that resonates even in my body. But then if we go, oh, uh, like it starts to move down into the chest. Mm. And we're getting my voice. I don't think my voice is warmed up. <laughs> but you can physically drop your whole person I could see that this. It, I could almost like see the sound moving down, and then and that helps your energy to move, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, in a healing or in a practice of remembrance, which is similar, it's basically meditation, right? It's mm. meditation is contemplation, mm-hmm. and so right now we're contemplating our connection to the big heart. Mm-hmm. And so, in that practice, I do really encourage people to use their voice. And just see, like, where are you today? What needs to be brought to this space without judgment, without attachment, visualizing whatever that is. It might be a person. It might be a feeling, a memory. 
And just letting it sit in that front row. There's an infinite front row of seats in front of your heart. One of my beloved teachers, uh, Thea Elijah, talks about the front row of our heart and how there's space for everything. Because again, that energetic field, let all of that just bask, all of our worries, our cares, whatever, mm-hmm. in, that, in that light that's coming out of our connection to our own heart and to the big heart. So that's, that's the first practice is mm-hmm. remembrance. And it is a practice. Okay. It's something that in any moment you can do for even just a few seconds mm-hmm. or for 15 minutes or an hour, whatever you, know, you have space for and, and need for in the moment. Definitely something I think people could do every day. And I have, I remember once during um, lockdown when I was doing a lot of, you know, like practices, you know, mindfulness practices, thinking, how many things can I do first thing in the morning? I've got to do my breathing, my meditation, my yoga. Um, But that feels like a really great way to start the day. And you can, you could do it lying down in bed, right? Oh, definitely. That's actually how I start my day is lying down, is not moving very quickly, giving myself those moments of mm-hmm. connection and and what's great about being in bed is that you can really like relax and release your whole body into mm. your bed and how mm. safe and held and contained do we feel when we like let ourselves melt and really be held by gravity yeah and then dropping into that heart space it just helps compound that experience that's really really beautiful it's just a beautiful way to start the day. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's how I say always, I shouldn't say always, but inshallah, God willing, that's how I start my day. And if I yeah. don't, I feel it later. I'm like, oh, maybe I should go take a few moments. And yeah. I'll take a it's few never moments too late, for myself so. and for my heart. It's never yeah. too late. Yeah. And I love I love the idea of the big heart. I mean, in, in neuroscience, it connects a little bit to me on, with the principle of universal connection or the collective unconscious. But the fact that it's, mm-hmm. we're using the word love and we're feeling in our heart just kind of it makes it even more beautiful. So for people who, you know, they may say that in their life they have experienced trauma that they're aware of or... Um, you know, I think it's very interesting hearing that you come from a sort of, you know, Germanic, um, mixed European background, that it's not as obvious as with, you know, some of the more spoken about marginalized groups that there would be intergenerational trauma. So whether it's been in your actual mm-hmm. life, or mm-hmm. you're starting to think about, um, you know, it's quite a new thing, really, for me to be thinking about that, no matter who you are, or where you come from, there could be inter- intergenerational trauma or epigenetically inherited things that have been affecting you your whole life. And you never thought about those things yet because the field of research is quite new. So as well as practicing this, and I'm you know, ho- hoping you're going to share a few other um, nuggets, how can people start to dig into where it is that their lack of self-love or their worries and cares are actually coming from? And, and do we actually need to know that or... Can we just practice these loving practices? This is such a great question. And I was reading this morning about um, our guide, CD, who was um, a caretaker, judge, um, teacher at, um, in Alaska, in Jerusalem. Mm. He started coming to the U.S. in 1994, I believe. And the thing I, I didn't know him 
in real life. I haven't met him in person, um, but I did. His spirit is very is very strong. And one of the things that I really appreciated about him, and as well as my other teachers and guides, is that he was known to meet people exactly where they were and what they needed. Mm-hmm. So with some people, he was very gentle. And some people, with some people, he was very strong. And what I've experienced throughout my walking and, and particularly being in school is that one person will get guidance and then we can just automatically think like, oh, well, that applies to me too. Mm-hmm. That must be what I need to do. And so I think it's an and. Mm-hmm. There have been times um, where I know I didn't need to know why. Where's the grief okay. from? Okay. Where's the pain in my body? Is it my pain? Is it pain from, you know, some other thing coming up? What is it? And then there's been times in my walking where it's like, no, I have to look at that. Okay. Whether it was for responsibility, whether it was um, just like, this is the healing that needs to be done. What I said earlier about and shared about my, my 10th great-grandmother Rebecca mm. Nurse, that's something that I have straight up been avoiding since I found out around 2020. I was like, oh, for so many layers. I'm like, I didn't know that anyone in my lineage was on what we now call U.S. soil, the United States of America soil, at that point in time, right? That's mm. like the 1700s. I didn't know. So I hadn't really done that, although much of my life and definitely the last four years, especially living nomadically, much of my journey was like, what does it mean to live on this land and in this earth in general, Mm -hmm. um, in right right relationship with myself, with the Mm -hmm. land, with people, Mm -hmm. with the different harms that have been committed. Mm -hmm. I'd definitely been on that journey, but I hadn't looked at that tiny bit of lineage for lots of reasons, right? To be hung, to be accused um, as a witch, to be um, someone who came over within what is the early years of what became the United States of America. Mm-hmm. All of that, I, I just had not dealt with. And so what I know for myself is like I had to heal and Allah had to help me with so much other to get me to this point to say, okay, we're going to take this head on. Mm-hmm. And so my... typically my if I'm giving advice to someone or guidance would just be start out gentle who doesn't need the love (laughs) we all do right we all do so if you could start out there then it's like stuff will come up when you're ready okay um and and be gentle and be okay with that. And and I actually I had a list in the beginning. And actually, this was before I found Sufism. I had like a trauma list. I was like, I have to check all these things. And somebody would come up and I just like put it on this list and felt like I needed to check it all off. And I was like, like, oh. like maybe that was helpful. There was something about writing it down where like maybe I didn't have to carry it so much. And sometimes I think we can take healing or just like existing in the world in a framework that isn't necessarily super like healthy or suited for our actual journey. Yeah. Um, to feeling more loved, more worthy, more connected to ourselves and others. Yeah. And I think I, I was just kind of pondering as you were speaking, why I asked you that question. And I think it comes from the fact that, you know, I was trained as a psychiatrist. I was trained in psychotherapy. Um, I'm a neuroscientist and 
that all very much aligns with you need to know what the root cause was to be able to deal with it. And I think what I'm finding a fascinating shift for myself when I'm looking at things like mysticism is maybe you don't need to know. And maybe my 10th great-grandmother was burnt at the stake as a witch, but I'll never find that out. But it's not going to harm me if I do the same healing work as you. So I feel like that's a real takeaway for people. Yeah. So I wanted to, I've got a few thoughts going on in my head. I wanted to ask you, when I when I wanted to speak with you about Sufi mysticism, I understood that that was like the spiritual arm of, but not necessarily had to be connected to Islam. And I also just wanted to say something because I'd like you to mention, speak, speak to this too, and it might be part of the same conversation, which is that having heard about, you know, the journey that you and your brother have been on, it made complete sense to me that you two are, you know, I don't know whether you would use the word converted, but you're full-time practices of Sufism. I was a bit shocked, however, to find out that your parents, who must be, you know, obviously are of an older generation in Kansas in a small town, have also converted to Sufism. So tell us a bit about, you know, what happened in your family and and how these practices, this belief in love, this understanding of the, you know, greater connection, how that sits in terms of spiritual versus religious, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I'm kind of in awe that this is where we all ended up. Um, And it's just, to me, like, again, there's divine timing. There is this beauty in which the universe and source just knows how to hold and allow things to unfold. So Sufis, my understanding of the Sufis, the Sufis were around years before Islam and before Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And they were... Suf, the word suf, I believe means um, blanket wearer. And so, or like blanket. And so you had a blanket that you wore and then a blanket, that same blanket was what covered you up at night. So very simple travelers, searchers, searchers of love, basically. And mm-hmm. so my understanding was that the Sufis were traveling, looking for the love, looking for um, that connection. And they went to all these different we could call them prophets or people of, of mm-hmm. love and of wisdom. And when they got to Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, he just sat with them. He didn't mm-hmm. say anything. Hmm. He was just there. And so when we talk about that heart connection, it was just like my understanding was just really being with another person, with this mm-hmm. group of people. And so depending on where you are in the world, some Sufis are Muslim. Some Muslims are Sufis. And mm-hmm. sometimes Muslims and Sufis don't necessarily um, really connect. Okay. And so interesting when the tradition, yeah, <laughs> it's not like a black or white thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's important to remember. Um, mm-hmm. Sufism is very much about the inner journey. We all have an outer and our inner journey impacts our outer experience. And so the Sufism Mm. is about the inner journey. It's about removing those veils. It's about, we might use the word purification of the heart Mm. Mm -hmm. and living in the world, but not being, you've heard the phrase like in the world, but not of the world. And so when the tradition was brought, meaning that, so as, as a Sufi, like there are very many spiritual traditions where maybe you can sequester yourself and you can be kind of out of the world and and 
spiritual and connected. Mm-hmm. The Sufis and in the Shadowlia way, the path that I am, you know, walking, we're meant to be in the world, serving, okay. Okay. serving the world, mm. healing, but not of the world, not attached to the materialistic, not okay. as I wear my big heart earrings, <laughs> not attached <laughs> to the materialistic, not attached to the outer maybe traditions of society. Yeah. It's okay. very much first about that interconnection. And so there's a very spiritual essence that continues with the tradition. And in particular, when CD brought it to the U.S., um, we're talking about teaching and meeting with people who are Jewish, Christian, Catholic Christian, all different faiths. And again, what was so beautiful is that everything that was brought is that the was the love and and the divine love and in a form that that person needed to hear. So the way mm-hmm. I've experienced Sufism practiced in the U.S. Um, and in my tree, I, I shouldn't say in my trika, but the way I've experienced it practiced is that some people still have ties to their Christianity or to their Judaism okay. mm-hmm. and their Sufi. And I can't say that's right or wrong. Um, mm. I know for some people that may not fit well, but it is very much a spiritual pra- practice and a spiritual process of um, committing to walking through those stations or levels to purify your heart, to become more in alignment with um, the big heart and with your own divinity, right? That who you were before you were. Um. And then my family, through that, <laughs> my sweet parents, as my brother and I have studied, my mom and dad have taken, there's this beautiful classes, again, like the foundations of Sufism. And through that, they also tasted the love. And it was like, oh, okay, this does make sense. And this does align. Um, I can't speak for my father, and I'm pretty sure he would still consider himself Catholic. Okay. And he's like, I signed up for... The love. And I signed up because I saw my kids were healing and loving themselves and others in a way. I've, I've heard oh. him say that part for sure. You know, and he's yeah. this beautiful 72-year-old Anglo man from, <laughs> you know, small town Kansas. Yeah. And so, yeah, who would have thought that he would even brush up with, let alone read and, and practice in his own beautiful way, um, this mystic tradition? I just, I couldn't have planned it better myself. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's why I wanted to mention it because it just paints a picture of something very unexpected. But I, I definitely um, appreciated from your answer that it is something that I or any of our listeners could bring into their life. And it doesn't mean you have to change your religion or, or even like be religious. Um, so that's, right. that's really great. No, and I still don't consider myself particularly religious and deeply, deeply spiritual. It's mm, also like, same. it's very, socially acceptable to be spiritual, generally speaking, at least in the U.S. Yeah. Um, to be religious comes with its own societal meh, yeah. yuck yeah. Um, sometimes. And I think that's the thing is actually, oh, I wish I had the book. One of the things that really brought me in, there's a reading from it called Music of the Soul. And this was one of the very first things that I was like, oh, yeah, I want more of this. So the okay. one of the first passages, Bismillah Rahim. when you find the love, you find yourself. The secret is in the love. You are the love, not another. 
everything is in the love and everyone needs the love. And then somewhere in here, it goes on to say that if we all knew our religion, whether that be Catholic, Christian, Christians are Catholic, Catholics are Christian, um, <laughs> Judaism, whatever it is, yeah. you'd know your religion was the religion of love. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, if I was religious at all, that would be the religion I practice is yeah. one of love yeah. and peace totally. and mercy. Mm. Oh, I love that. Um, a bit of a random thought has come into my head, which is I, had a, I bumped into my neighbor on the street and she, she said to me, you interact with people you, or you become into community with people who are at the same level of love as you. And so on your journey, what things have changed in your life, like in terms of the people that you hang around with or the things that you do or, or anything, you know, many, maybe there's something else I haven't thought of. I, I'd just love to understand for the listeners what, what they can expect to experience differently if they take part in these practices. The very first thing that comes into my heart is I moved to New York City in December of last year, mm -hmm. so twenty. 22. My brother's lived here since 2005. I'm very familiar with the city. I'd come stay two, four weeks at times. So I felt like I knew the city well. And to some extent, I knew what to expect. The first few months, one, it was my first winter in like 15 years. Mm. That was a lot to surrender. <laughs> mm. The practices help you surrender what you can't control, like okay. the weather mm. <laughs> or a late bus or somebody being grumpy or whatever. That's the first thing. The next thing was this city in particular, and I've traveled all over the country, many the country being the United States of America, many other countries around the world. And this city in particular, when you're on the streets, it's such a communal city in that we're all very compact. And because it's New York City and the U.S., the visual disparities within lived experiences are mm. right in your face. Yeah. And it was devastating for me and mm. for everyone, I think at times, right, to be seeing the same person on the side. Yeah. You know, the corner, around the corner from where I live, over and over and over again, to the point where, like, I couldn't have a connection to my heart, mm. where it was, like, breaking in a different way. Yeah. And it's still like, it's still right. Like you can feel the pain mm. and with these practices and in particular that heart connection practice, what happens where an option is to just kind of like disassociate and like not pay attention to people. That's yeah. an option. Mm -hmm. um, that's a coping mechanism, right? But there's another option of that heart connection and that practice where what I've noticed for me is my capacity for both pain and joy for grief and love, for all of these, like the vast range of human experiences has expanded Okay, to where I can see that same woman. I can stop and talk to the man who sells books near Union Square D <laughs> and we can have <laughs> conversations and he, we can just have human heart to heart connection mm -hmm. without the judgment, without any kind of like whatever may nor what would have come up in that experience. Yeah. Deciding to ignore somebody or feel bad or whatever, right? Be angry, all these different things. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for anger. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for action. 
all this stuff, right? But it's like, how do you exist in the world where you don't lose heart? Because when we lose heart, we harm. We harm ourselves. We harm yeah. others. Um, we yeah. can't act in a way. Like, there's a role for everyone in how we live a more heart-connected, loving, kind, compassionate way in this world. And that looks different for everybody, right? Mm. Some people are going to protest in the streets. Some people are going to be lawyers. Some people are going to be doctors. My role is to help heal people's heart as a spiritual, yeah. spiritual healing practitioner. And so... Yeah. Whether you like go down that path and like, I want to learn in that way, or you practice that heart connection practice, having the space for love in a place that's also, or in an experience also devastating yeah, is huge. Yeah. That to me is, is priceless. I feel like this conversation has become about something so much bigger than what I thought it was going to be. Um, I'm, you know, you know how curious I am about Sufi mysticism, and I'm really glad that we've learned, you know, something very practical that we can bring into our lives. But I feel like just it's not even words. Like the emotions that are hovering around me are like mercy, love, compassion, and just you know what a beautiful way to live. And and I, and I like the way that you talk about that not just being part of a privileged life, but a beautiful way to navigate what can sometimes be a very distressing and difficult world. And, you know, in my ex clinical experience, since the beginning of the pandemic and the consequences on mental health and spiritual well-being for people are so vast, this is just, it's kind of very eye-opening in terms of how do you choose to live? I wonder how often people mm. actually stop and ask themselves that question. Um so yeah, you can, both of our voices are quite emotional, but it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like loneliness, anxiety, all these things that we could frame how we're feeling as a society, mm. it, that's also like at ec epidemic levels, like the statistics are there mm. to support that. And what I know through the most simple practice again, <laughs> and it is so simple. Yeah, And yet it's so profound because it you continue to, your divinity, and when I say divinity, what I mean is, is so there's this beautiful belief and, and Sufism that there's the 99 divine names of love. Mm -hmm. And that can also be said the 99 divine names of Allah. And it's all these different characteristics, essentially. And they're all possessed in our heart in a unique recipe. And when you start to to walk to, or to, to remove the rust from your heart, mm. you start to know those qualities in a more true form. Okay. And that's what's so beautiful. So like my whole mission is to help people know their inner beauty and see it reflected in the world around them. Yeah. So yeah. we have a more kind, compassionate and considerate world. Because once we know, um, the, the first two names are Ar-Rahman and Rahim, and it's mm. the most merciful and the most compassionate. Mm. And those are like the ocean of mercy. We talked mm. about that earlier. Those mm. contain the ocean of mercy. Okay. And you can just float. If you did nothing. So what's beautiful is like also making that awe sound is you can chant or listen to recordings of chanting of the divine names. Yeah. And it will start to wash those places, removing the rust that need that divine quality. And so if you want to begin to experience floating in the ocean of mercy, 
and divine love, it's Arachman and Rahim. And they open up the passage for all the other names. Okay. And that's something you can experience on your own. Um, the book that I really love, there's many books on divine names. The one's literally mm-hmm. divine names. It's the 99 healing names of the one love um, by Fazia Al-Rari. I'm not sure how to say her last name. We'll but put it into um, the show notes. if you say Fazia, yeah, put it in the yeah. show because... It's beautiful. It's like one to two pages summarize of absolute beauty, Sufi mystic, mysticism, and love. And it's one of those things you always get what you need. And that's another one of my practices. Is it the one that you showed me in New York? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to get it. I I think it it resonates with me because um, if you use Sanskrit mantras or chanting, you don't have to know what the words mean. It's like you said, it's the resonance of the words. So um, yeah, I want to get the book, but I'm also going to see if I can find some like pre-recorded chanting to listen to as well. Um, AD, it's been so wonderful to have your time, your energy and your love. I've definitely felt it. And I'm particularly interested to hear from our listeners the feedback from this because I just I feel like I want to hear how it's made people feel rather than you know it's like kind of like the regular things that you might be curious about from a podcast episode um if people want to follow you find out more about your work where are the best places to reach you instagram's always great um I have two instagram accounts aurora spiritual or this is adrian yeah. And you can find me on Instagram always. Um, AuroraSpiritual.com is my website where you can learn more. Those are the two biggest places. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you again the next time I'm in New York. Same here. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I do hope, if nothing else, forget the words and feel the love. Yeah, I, re- I really got that from this conversation. I hope so. Thank you. If you have a question or comment for me, please email or send an audio recording of your question to drtara at knox.studio. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. Mm-hmm.